0: This is Web3 Breakdowns. Web3 Breakdowns is a series of conversations exploring innovation in the decentralized internet. Each episode, we will focus on a different topic. We will cover NFT projects, crypto assets, blockchain-based protocols, and businesses being built with Web3 architecture. We will talk to founders, artists, investors, and influencers to understand this emerging ecosystem. Come join us down the rabbit hole. To find more episodes, transcripts, and a library of content to continue your learning, visit joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions.
1: This is Eric Golden, and my guest today is Reed McGinley-Stemple. Reed is the co-founder and CEO of Stitch, which is on a mission to eliminate friction and improve security on the internet. Stitch started with passwordless authentication and Reed does a great job explaining why this is so important to businesses. We discussed the power of using Ethereum to sign on to any website. And towards the end of the conversation, Reed shares their newest product, Vessel, a wallet solution that eliminates the need to memorize 12 word seed phrases. Please enjoy my conversation with Reed McGinley Stemple. Today, I'm excited to have Stitches founder Reed McGinley Stemple with me. Reed, we've talked in the past, and I've learned a lot from you about authentication, passwords, and so I'm really excited for this episode. I thought a fun place to start would be: what is the history of users utilizing passwords, and why do they suck so much?
2: I could go as far back as thousands of years. I'll spare you that, but. Passwords go back further than the Romans, using them for watchwords, for garrison ships. How we use passwords today in our online lives in order to access different accounts and apps goes back to 1961, where the password was invented by someone named Fernando Corbato at MIT. They needed a way for people to access the mainframe and time-sharing systems that different PhD students were accessing for their studies at MIT. You needed a way, if you have this scarce resource of this Mainframe that everybody wants to use? How do you actually create an account that can decrement time if you're limited to five hours per week or 10 hours per week? And what's interesting is that even pretty early on, you could see some of the weaknesses with passwords, where you'd imagine that's a pretty good faith environment with colleagues and other students in a university. But one of the first hacks of passwords was individuals finding out that the plain text credentials actually stored locally on the device and that they could steal their peers' time on the actual mainframe if they could hack into that. And so this is obviously pre-hashing algorithms. But effectively, if you go back to passwords, it starts 1961. It probably doesn't start mattering to a lot of end users and consumers until the 1990s, where we start getting all these mainstream applications and websites that come online. And they need a way as they move from read-only, where in a read-only world a static site, you and I are served the exact same blog posts. Regardless of you are in New York and I'm in San Francisco. But as it starts moving into more interesting internet use cases where the website wants to recognize me, store information on my account. Maybe store my payment credentials. There becomes that aspect where it needs to gate access to the application. The most reasonable way for them to do that in the nineties was to use passwords. They needed something where it was a memorized secret that they could check their database against what the user was reproducing and say, is this Reed or is this Eric or is this Patrick? That allowed them to create early on in the nineties, this concept of username and passwords to access accounts. What I think is interesting is that from the sixties onwards, Effectively, what we used for authentication is this something you know factor. This is a memorized secret I can reproduce time and time again. The reason that we use that in the 90s, but that this is becoming increasingly disintermediated, is that we've gotten new types of way to authenticate ourselves over the last two decades. The first innovation was that we started seeing something you have authentication factors, physical devices, whether that's a hardware key like the YubiKey or an RSA key, to more mainstream use cases like authenticating through your email inbox or your phone inbox. And then more recently, over the last 9 to 10 years, we've actually started getting biometrics, which have introduced a new authentication type of something you are. So how can I verify with a face ID or touch ID that this is who I am? Passwords have definitely a long history. And it makes sense that they were the first authentication method that went mainstream on the internet, even if it had some shortcomings.
1: I think about my life today and how many passwords I have to keep track of everywhere. I remember being in a big company and they were changing our passwords every 30 days because it was an attack vector. And you hear these horrible statistics of how everyone uses the same passwords. How did we end up in such a state where everything I use from a simple app to my bank account all have the same structure?
2: It really comes back to the 1990s, where you start seeing those applications in the 90s and early 2000s make the shift from being a static site to being that dynamic site that needs to serve you that generated content. When all those sites started having their explosion moment, where they wanted to give you publishing abilities, dynamic data in the application, and they needed that user account, we didn't have those other authentication factors that I was talking about. So we didn't have the ability to verify someone's phone number or their email inbox because we didn't really have programmatic SMS like Twilio. We didn't have programmatic email like SendGrid. We didn't have biometrics in devices. We didn't even have handheld devices where I could carry a Face ID with. And of course, we didn't have Touch ID on those computers that we were using. So if you're an application developer in the 90s or early 2000s, you look around and there's really not much else you could do other than say, I'm going to ask the user to create a secret that they give to me and I store in my database, and hopefully I'm hashing it so it's not just plain text, but then I will check it every time they come back to the application. The way that that started, it made sense when there was just a few applications, when you have three to five applications that you're using on a regular basis, you might actually create completely new and unique, strong passwords so that the breach of one site doesn't impact the rest of your sites. But pretty quickly, what happens is those three to five sites you're originally using on the internet go to, as you said, your banking site comes online, more e-commerce sites come online, crypto exchanges that you use or any other application that you're interacting with. The problem there is that we kept that same initial assumption of how to do authentication, which was make the user create a memorized secret, and then we'll store it. And the problem is that users got fatigued with this approach. So users, when they're asked to create 200 different passwords and manage them across different accounts, in an ideal world, they'd probably be using something like 1Password to create strong, unique passwords across all of them. But more often, what users are finding is that It's easier for them just to choose one or two passwords that check all the boxes on a special character, a number, capital letters, length, of password, and then they'll use that and reproduce it across every account that they sign up for. So that's how, as you mentioned, we get into this world where Target.com getting hacked and their database being breached actually could imperil your Coinbase account or your Chase account. A lot of it came back to the center idea of what was technologically available to application developers as they first came online, even if it maybe is not something they were happy about implementing at the time.
1: Google did a study that said like 65% of users reuse their passwords like you just explained. I think something we've talked about in the past, which I'd love for you to walk through is how these attack vectors open up. From your prior experience, what happens in that target hack? What does a hacker actually do that lets them even get a chance to catch you off
2: sides? This was an eye-opening experience for me when I joined Plaid, and I'm sure we'll talk about that a little bit later. The chain of events that lead to account fraud are actually extremely predictable. And right now in a password-based world, they're kind of an attacker's best friend because they're really scalable as well, the way that it's conducted today. So if you think about the chain of events that lead to your account most often being stolen and defrauded, it's that you likely as a user have been asked across 100, 200 different sites to create a new password. And if I had to guess, you're probably using the same password across many different sites. Sometimes you even forget about those sites that you signed up for. You signed up for this random forum five years ago. Effectively, what happens is that those 200 sites are not created equal in terms of their security posture for how they actually safeguard those memorized secrets in their database. You can imagine the chases and Coinbase of the world are going to extreme lengths to make sure that their databases do not get breached. But if you're that forum, you might not have the security expertise or even think your application is that sensitive that you need to invest this much in that attack vector. And so what happens is that attackers will find those sources of weak links in the system where you might have a lot of users that use this forum or this e-commerce site. So they might have 10 million credentials. And attackers will focus their efforts on these easier prey, where they'll be able to breach the database. Once they pop it, they have access to, let's say, 10 million usernames and passwords, depending on the site that they've just reached. Now I want to go figure out how many of these users reuse the exact same credentials at a bank account or a crypto account or a fintech account. And there's a couple different ways that they can do that. The most common is there's actually an entire cottage industry for going and validating credentials in the fraud world where someone that hacks an account or hacks a database will often sell those credentials to other bidders that have built the coding infrastructure to effectively run bots... At these other sites, whether that's chase.com, bankofamerica.com, Wells Fargo, Coinbase, etc. They'll run these scripts in order for them to effectively what we call credential stuff. And their desired outcome is, of these 10 million credentials, can I find out that 3 to 4 million users reuse the exact same password at their bank accounts? Because now I have a path to monetization that is lower execution risk and probably far higher in terms of the monetary value. What will happen is they run those scripts, they find out, okay, now I have all these breach credentials that have been validated, that I know work at Coinbase, Chase, Venmo, et cetera. Some of them will actually go and execute on the fraud. Often though, they'll sell the validated credentials. So it's almost like a supply chain of fraud that's being created and is actually pretty mature. So they'll sell those credentials and allow someone to actually go do the execution, draining of the bank account, of the peer-to-peer payments account, of the crypto account, And that's often how you actually end up with these account hacks. You likely reused a password somewhere in the past on an account you completely forgot about. And then somebody was able to breach that core website and then leverage the fact that you reused that password elsewhere to go monetize it against something more valuable to you like your bank account. Maybe
1: this is a good time to talk a little bit more about Plaid, where you met your co-founder, Juliana, and a little bit more about that first job you guys worked on. What I find interesting is this balance between creating friction to protect the end user and then make stuff frictionless so people can go fast. So maybe talk a little bit more about what you actually did at Plaid and how that might have led to your next move at Stitch.
2: For those consumers unfamiliar with what Plaid is, they've probably actually used it in the past if they've ever connected their bank account to Venmo or Coinbase or Robinhood or really any financial application. Plaid is effectively a middleware that sits between the bank's APIs and those financial applications so that you can actually connect your Chase account to Coinbase without having to get your checkbook, wait for micro deposits to hit your account. And so it's a way for you to connect your bank account to another application on the internet. Plaid effectively has in addition to all those APIs and all those products under the hood that they offer to developers, the end user sees a account connection screen when they go into Coinbase or Robinhood that says, do you want to link your Chase or Wells Fargo account? And that's where you go through a bank account authentication flow, which my co-founder Juliana and I worked on at Plaid, where we kind of had two primary focus areas for how to think about bank account linking and authentication. The first was to your point, How do we make sure this is secure? How do we stop bots from trying to credential stuff? How do we stop a real human being from trying to steal someone else's bank account if they're at the end of that supply chain fraud, where they're now trying to execute on stolen credentials? And so one big focus was on the security and improving the posture there of bank account authentication. The other area that we thought about every day was how do you actually continue to maintain low friction and increase conversion for an end user trying to connect their bank account. And there's two reasons for this. The first was Plaid only monetized when you could successfully connect a bank account. So that mattered to us. But the other reason was that a lot of our customers, the conversion that Plaid was able to provide them had a direct hit on their acquisition costs of customers. Because imagine if you're a crypto exchange and you pay $100 to Google ads, Facebook ads, etc. to get a user to download your app and get down the funnel... If we now lose 50% of users at the bank account connection step, when they try to connect their bank account to actually fund that account, that's where you're going to effectively double your CAC, your acquisition costs. And so therefore, there are real implications on the margins of cloud customers. And so we thought a lot about that conversion and UX piece. What was interesting for us is that On the security side, playing whack-a-mole on all these security threats that get created in a credential-based world, as well as on the conversion side, where we noticed our single largest source of drop-off was users forgetting their password. It was shocking to us how the friction of asking someone to go through that five to seven-minute password reset flow could lead them to completely abandon something they are otherwise interested in, like buying their first stock, buying crypto for the first time, managing their budget with a financial management tool. My co-founder and I, it took us a couple of years to have this aha light bulb moment. But we realized that the biggest headache we faced on the security side was actually the same on the conversion side, which was that passwords were both suboptimal when it came to offering security to end users and their accounts, but also really suboptimal when you're thinking about sign up and login conversion, because it creates a lot of overhead for the user and the users commonly forget it. That was one of the things that got us really excited about what we're doing now, which is thinking about how to create actual APIs and developer tools for every company to go passwordless. And so it's cliched, but sometimes we describe ourselves today as Stripe for passwordless authentication.
1: Tell me more about that aha moment and what it means to be passwordless. What does that actually mean for the company, for the end users?
2: The aha moment, we were thinking about trying to build passwordless functionality in-house at Plaid. And at the same time, my co-founder had actually left Plaid and gone to a company called Very Good Security. Where she had been working on one of the projects was actually ripping out a company called Auth0 from their Auth stack because they were running into issues with it. And we were just catching up over coffee one time. And we were both talking about how frustrating it was that passwords and the infrastructure around them was both difficult to work with as a developer, but also really bad from an end user security and conversion lens. And that was where it kind of clicked for us over that coffee, which was. Why isn't there a Stripe for authentication? What we meant by that was something that's really sublime in terms of developer experience, APIs, SDKs, but also gives you a really good end user experience because Stripe does care a lot about converting your user at payment. And that's something I think they paid a lot more attention to than their competitors. So while it's a cliche way to describe ourselves, I think it is accurate in terms of how we think about both the developer experience side and end user experience. What it means to be passwordless and... There's still a lot of companies we work with that have passwords as a part of their stack. And we play completely nicely with that. We understand a lot of companies are on the adoption curve where they can start with some passwordless pieces, but maybe they have some demographic of their user base that are not ready to completely drop passwords. But the core theme of what passwordless is, is the concept that if you think about your current user account signup and login flow every company in the world actually has a concept of passwordless authentication. They often don't know it or think about it as passwordless authentication. But if you are doing a password reset, effectively, what you're saying is, I've created authentication logic that if this user can verify that they own the email address that was registered, or sometimes the phone number, depending on the application, I feel good enough about this end user that I'm willing to provision access to them on the account without making them remember their password. And password resets are now a common way that we operate on the internet. I probably reset something like 5 to 6 passwords a week. And it's frustrating. Sometimes I abandon it. But effectively, if you think about passwordless authentication, it's taking the concept or the underlying assumption of password resets, which is I can delegate authentication to other methods than just remembering this random secret the user created last time... I can delegate it to an email account, a phone account. More commonly, what we're seeing now is also things like biometrics. I can let the user log in with Face ID or Touch ID, which are much more secure than passwords because we don't create that chain of exploitation that I was talking about earlier, but also very low friction for the user because they don't have to go through password resets. They don't have to sign up for your account by creating a five multi-condition password, then confirming it on the next screen. And so there are ways for you to both reduce friction while actually increasing the actual security posture of that account.
1: I think it's actually where you guys might have started with these magic links, because I don't think I've ever thought about the reset as actually authenticating the end user. But I know people protect their email in some cases more than they protect their financial accounts because they just assume they're going to forget it. They might know the street they grew up on or all the seven questions you have to answer. Everyone's just very guarded about their email. When you and Juliana were thinking about attacking this industry, there's big players. How did you decide where to focus? How did the products follow after
2: that? Very quickly, you're right that that was one of the alarming stats to us when we were getting into the passwordless world that more users put 2FA on their email account than their bank account, which actually makes it a great backbone to your point. But I think for us, when we were looking at the landscape of what we wanted to build and where we wanted to start, you really do need to have a suite or a platform of products if you want to be an authentication as a service company. Because very rarely will companies have the exact same authentication challenges. Some companies are going to want to offer multi-factor, really secure passwordless methods on top of each other. For example, we work with some crypto exchanges that want to offer things like authenticator apps as a first class MFA option or YubiKeys or biometrics versus some of the e-commerce sites that we work with might want to use SMS login if you're coming from mobile. They're not as worried about a SIM swap attack because the value attached to that account is much lower than a bank or financial account. And then in other cases, you might be working with a SaaS company that needs to do things like single sign-on, sign in with Microsoft, sign in with GitHub, sign in with Google. So there's a lot that we could have built around the platform when we started. The first product we started with was that email magic link product that I was alluding to earlier, which was our password resets are already 8-step email verifications. What if we just created the method for you to sign up a user the same way that you verify their email, but then that actually completely removes the need for them to create a password at sign up. And when they come back, you just send them a magic link, which gives them access on whatever device they're on, and you can manage the user session. And so the reason we started with that over other options like OAuth or SMS or biometrics was partially when you're a 5-person team, you need to start somewhere. But the big piece for us that we were hearing was email magic links had started to gain notoriety amongst some of the early adopters that had built them in-house, like Slack had popularized it in many consumers' minds that had been used to that Slack magic link experience. A few other banks had adopted it, like Monzo Bank in the UK. We were hearing a lot of novel interest in it, but not many people knew what actually went into building it. And so for us, that made sense because choosing that over starting with something like SMS passcodes which was a product we launched after that you may have commonly come across that in the 2FA model where you could integrate twilio or something like that and so we start with magic links based on the novelty and effort required to build them obviously a lot of what i think is interesting about an off platform is that you can do everything for a client whether that's session management biometrics as a 2FA or these other 2FA options giving users optionality at signup. So some people will choose sign with Google or sign with Apple or email magic link or phone, creating those different options or menus for end users.
1: Before Stitch and some of these other players in the space, was a lot of this done in-house or how did people
2: handle the different levels of security? Pretty much all passwordless implementations would have been done in-house. Some of the notable passwordless companies on the consumer side when we started Stitch were Cash App, Revolut, which is a large fintech in Europe, Monzo Bank, and then Slack with their Magic Link experience. That would have all been built in-house based on the developer tools available at the time. If you wanted to build a password-based flow, though, you could have used something like Auth0 or Okta, which are actually now one company. Okta acquired Auth0 last year for... A little under 7 billion. That was the legacy password as a service solution that's become quite popular. But if you were trying to build passwordless, there were some features that you could get off the shelf from some of those providers that had it as like a bolt on offering. But often if you wanted flexibility to own the UX or design, you'd end up just building it yourself in house.
1: Before we move to web three and some of the cooler projects you're working on now, when I go to a website and it says log in with Apple, log in with Google, log in with email, what do you call that type of authentication?
2: We call those OAuth connections. And there's actually like two pieces of it. One, you can use it just for authenticating yourself. Like I have access to this Apple account or this Google account. The term OAuth actually comes from some of the other capabilities where if you wanted to, you could share other user scopes with that application. So with Superhuman, I share all of my Gmail scopes with them so that they can create this interface on top of my email client. Or sometimes you might be asked to share your contacts, your calendar info. That's where... The OAuth piece comes in, but OAuth can also be used just for that authentication sign up, login access.
1: Maybe this is actually the time to move to Web3 because I'm really curious. Anytime I do that, I feel like my options are I have to go set up another username and password, but I'm being lazy. And by pressing that Google or Apple button, maybe it's just me. They just want to take all my data and monetize it. Is that the wrong way to think about it, that they're really just trying to help it be easier and protect me? Or is it when you press that button, you're giving up a lot of information about yourself?
2: I don't think it's the wrong way to think about it. I don't know if Google and the Facebooks of the world are as public with what they do with that data. But if you think about what's happening, I don't know enough about how they do this behind the scenes, but technically they now know you as a user, which apps you use outside of their ecosystem, and then also how commonly you access them. For example, if you sign up for a site that's a forum around having a baby or something like that, they can allude to the fact that you're probably at that step in your life. Obviously, there's a lot of other data that could go into that, like your search data on Google. But effectively, they do know the apps that you use and how often you access them. So I don't think you're wrong about that, that there is a lot of data that gets provided there. I still use it for the convenience factor. Signing with Google is definitely my go-to because I also know the security posture of my Google account. To your point, I've locked it down like Fort Knox because I know it has the keys to the kingdom. So I do really appreciate what they've done from a convenience perspective. I don't love the privacy element that I do have to give all of that data to Google. But there's actually one bigger thing that I have concerns with, which is Google has so much data about me. I really wish they would allow me to share and provision more data than they currently allow me to provision because theoretically, Google knows me better than anyone in my life. The problem is the only things I can share or provision with Google to other applications to get value out of are the things that they have deemed scopes that you can officially share when you're signing up. So those are the scopes like access to my calendar or my contacts, where it probably made product sense for them to build that. It's unfortunate that there's so much data and context that lives within that account that I can never share with another company that wants to provide me with a service or somebody that actually wants to compete with Google, but needs to build their network graph on their users that are onboarding to them.
1: I hadn't really thought about all the data that I might want to do. The example I was thinking about was I wanted to get a haircut and the barbershop uses an app now, but I have to log in to make this haircut. And I'm like, I really have to do this. And then I think about a crypto wallet having multi-factor authentication. One of the things that's interesting to me about Stitch is you have all these different levels that you can say to someone, do you really have to use this for this use case? I'd love to hear more about this idea of being an API first company. You're building for developers. I'm not going to use Stitch necessarily, but a developer I hired to build something could use Stitch. So tell me more about the ethos of
2: building for them and trying to solve their problems. A lot of our focus on API first came from our frustrations with some of the incumbents when we were starting this company. And obviously, a lot of the focus was on bringing passwordless methods to developers. But the other piece very core to how we think about developer experience is flexibility of how you could integrate Stitch. And the fact that we still allow our customers, if they want, to own all the UI and UX and design, because I found a lot of the most demanding companies when it comes to design are also the ones that are going to be the biggest, the ones that end up out-competing their competitors because they have that fine-grained attention on what the look and feel of their application is. So API first, what that means to us, when we had looked at the market of passwords as a service, authentication as a service, these Acero and Okta companies were really built around widget-based authentication. I land on a website, I click login or sign up, I get popped out to another window that sometimes it will be branded off zero and other times it will be white labeled, but either way, you know you're not on the actual site that you went to. And it's fine in some circumstances, but what we have found with a lot of our customers is that you actually lose conversion when you have to hop users out to a high latency experience like that, especially on mobile web, if you're popping them to a new tab. And so there are real considerations that come from a conversion standpoint, but more commonly, the problem is that that widget is a black box to the developer where they wanted to own the UX UI design and the user interactions. And now because they didn't get access to the bare metal APIs to build that on their site or in their use case, there's a lot they just can't do with the platform because it's a one size fits most type of approach. So API first, what that means for us is that we do build some of those widgets, SDKs, front ends for customers that want them every product that we build starts at an API first level, which means it's the most flexible and composable that a customer could want, and that they could fully white label everything. And honestly, we've been surprised at some of the use cases when you're that flexible. We have a lot of payment checkout companies that use us to create accounts at checkout, which is not how we originally conceived of Stitch. But it was one of the nice benefits of being really flexible is that you can create accounts anywhere, regardless of whether it's a core up or login flow. It could just be at the end of a payment. The API first approach is very much give people access to the bare metal APIs, like they can get as close to the product as they want, they can own everything, make it easy for them, but make it so that they can do that extra work if they want to from a flexibility standpoint. And then the thing that we build on top of that are our SDKs, which are a little bit more, you can get the front end as a service, you can get headless functionality, where we wrap some of these endpoints as a service. And it may not be as flexible as a direct API, but you can choose amongst those options, what makes most sense for your application. As
1: someone who's now built both sides of it, it'd be interesting to get your perspective on if you had two businesses, if Stitch was two companies, there was the API Stitch, and then there was the SDK front end Stitch. What are the pros and cons of each of those companies?
2: On the API first level, you do really well with fast growing companies, particularly enterprises, maybe pre IPO. These are not customers yet. And although hopefully one day the Robinhoods, Coinbase's Ubers Lyfts of the world, Stripe, for example, one of the reasons they did really well with the Uber, Lyfts, DoorDash's Shopify's of the world is that they may have been smaller when they started with Stripe, but they had really sharp focus on design and UX. And so the fact that Stripe's direct API gave them a lot more flexibility than something like a PayPal, probably made a pretty large, credible difference in why they chose Stripe over other solutions. One of the things you get on the API first level is a lot of those demanding customers that really want to own the UX and UI. With that, you get a lot of scale and fast growth that you need to keep up with as these companies rocket upwards. One challenge there is... Those are really sophisticated companies. So when you're a 5- to 10-person company trying to sell someone, trust us as your front door to your application. Even if you own the UX, we're owning the primitives underneath. That definitely is a wall you're going to run into occasionally, which is how do you get people to trust you in that type of company regard. On the other hand, you asked about the front-end widgets, SDKs. If you just sell that, you can do really well with companies that want nothing to do with authentication they don't even want to touch the UI and UX. They're just like, let me click a button, send the user somewhere else. You bring them back when they're verified. And I think there's a lot of people that have a reasonable perspective on why they want to do that. Often it's companies that are not pure software companies. Maybe they're a retailer that has a website, or maybe they're a car dealership that has a website where their software team is not the core focus of their business prop. And so they don't want to spend all this time fiddling with the design and UX and UI and interactions of authentication. In both worlds, you can be successful. I think the trade-off is, on the direct API approach, you get a lot of fast-growing, demanding companies that sometimes it's hard to crack into because those are the companies that are really demanding in their vendor selection as well. On the front-end SDK side, You get companies that are likely just going to be happy that you're taking this off their chest, and they probably don't know that much about authentication anyways. And that's great. I think you can actually scale pretty well there. You're just probably never going to get the Uber's list store dashes of the world to adopt a solution like that.
1: As you were building Stitch, did you ever think about not doing the SDK front-end stuff at all and just being API only?
2: We never thought about not doing it at all. It definitely took a backseat early on to us getting the API right and then making sure we had the team in place to build the types of front-ends and SDKs that we wanted. We thought about deprioritizing it quite a bit. But I think the reason we didn't want to not build it at all was that we knew there's a spectrum also where sometimes even early stage teams that will become demanding just want the thing out of the box for their beta. And then they want to move to your more flexible option... And so to us, we always thought it was important to have a gradient where you can move along that gradient as your needs changed as a company. So we did deprioritize it for a bit, but we never wanted to completely take it off the table. All right. So let's
1: move to one of my favorite topics, Web3. What you're thinking about the space, your first exposure to it, how you're thinking about it from authentication, and how Stitch plays a role there.
2: My first personal exposure was actually far before Stitch when I was working at Plaid. And one of the companies I worked with closely was Coinbase. And you could tell there was something happening there. This is even before the 2017 run-up where crypto became a little bit more mainstream. But you could tell the caliber of talent that they had accumulated was really impressive. My co-founder and I were casually interested in Web3 and crypto for a few years before starting Stitch. We didn't have anything that we were so compelled by as a net new product idea we would bring to the market that made sense for us to build a company there. But I think what Stitch has opened our eyes to is that because we're so deep in the authentication world... The thing that clicked as everything coming full circle and us being excited about the solutions we could build in Web3 is similar to what I was talking about, where we've seen some pretty large authentication shifts when we went from something you know factors like passwords to something you have like email, phone, hardware keys to something you are like biometrics. We're seeing similar paradigm shifts from Web1 authentication to Web2 to Web3. Stitch was founded because we think Web2 authentication is in a pretty suboptimal spot. It's where we're delegating credentials to hundreds of different applications. We really hope they don't get hacked and create all this liability and risk for us. And it's also really high friction for us as end users to continuously create these passwords and reset them. And what's really exciting to us about Web3 is it takes this idea of what if you could create one account and then bring your account across the internet with you, And in some ways, I think about a MetaMask or Phantom, these popular Web3 wallets, as very large improvement to both what account security and friction could look like. On the security side, you're no longer creating your own password. So it takes the footgun away from the end user there. There are some other footguns it introduces right, with non-custodiality. What's a footgun? That's a term that we use a lot, which is if you give users something that allows themselves to easily shoot themselves in the foot, which we would say... Today, passwords are because the user uses it across different sites. One of the ways we can shorthand that, maybe not commonly referenced by others, is a footgun. Does this product have a big footgun or a small footgun? Are we taking the footgun away from someone? That's something we usually think about. We never want to push the onus on end users. We want to give them both a more secure and lower friction process without them having to think about it. The Web3 wallets are interesting because it does remove some of the user error with creating a password that's been reused elsewhere. That's promising to us. From a friction perspective, the fact that a website can just detect whether I have MetaMask or Phantom installed when I land on it. And then in one-click verification, I can authenticate, sign up without having to create a net new account. Also, I have things like identity via NFTs or other things that you attach to the wallet or payments with the actual transfer of crypto all tied to this one-click process for me moving across the internet, that to us is really promising. Where users could shoot themselves in the foot, it being self-custodial is one of the bigger problems where you're introducing novel foreign concepts like seed phrases, the way that passwords work on MetaMask and Phantom are local only. So you can't go to another device, even if you remember that password and use that account. There's definitely some concerns there. But I think the thing that we're excited about was bring your own account across the internet with these Web3 wallets. And the other thing I'll mention that goes back to how we were talking about signing with Google and data provisioning. I think about these as signing with Google on steroids, because data and the data that you can provision is now no longer chosen by the company's product direction. So Google has chosen what is the data that you're allowed to share with other services. With a Web3 wallet, you collect data, and it's openly verifiable on-chain if you can verify you own this wallet. So what NFTs do you own? That could signify either that you're part of a community or maybe you bought a ticket to something that had an NFT. And so effectively, you get this data exhaust that gets appended to a low friction, but secure way for people to transfer that, provision it across the internet as they see demand for it. That's what was really interesting to us. I don't think Web2 authentication methods are going away anytime soon. We do have strong adoption from MetaMask, 32 million monthly active users, handful of million active users for Phantom... But we do think the underlying fundamentals of how that authentication works differently than Web2 is compelling enough that it made sense for us to support things like logging with Ethereum, logging with Solana, allow people to either build completely Web3 native authentication apps, or more commonly, what we're seeing on our platform, login with MetaMask next to login with Google or login with Apple so that you can serve both the 30 plus million users with MetaMask, but also the billion plus users that have a Google account that they might want to use for your site.
1: I'm excited to hear more about what you're doing with logging with Ethereum. But if we go to that example, you're a business and there's logging with Google, log with Apple, logging with Ethereum. From your perspective, is there an economic tension where the SEO spend, the way business is monetized by selling ad dollars, where Google's Ethereum breaks that connection? Yes, you know, it's a wallet and you know some interesting things, but Google has that huge data trove. So do you think there will be a lack of adoption on the Web2 side? Like... I don't love this Ethereum permissioning. I like the old way where
2: the big company directs the data. I think there will be definitely Web2 use cases where they're more hesitant to move to it. But I think from a economic incentive perspective, they don't have too much incentive for them to protect the current Vanguard. I do think they have a UX incentive in the near term to protect the Vanguard, which says if I like sign with Google and sign with Apple and sign with email as my three options... As a Web2 company, if I don't think I have a lot of Web3 users, I would have some open questions about what would it look like if I threw a login with MetaMask next to that. You're starting to muddle the UX. And if somebody doesn't know what MetaMask is, you could theoretically reduce conversion for some users if they're confused about what's happening. We look a lot at what is the optimal number of auth options to give users a sign up and login. Usually it's 3 to 4. But one of the things that I think is pretty magical about how Web3 wallets are created and the architecture around them is that in the Web2 world, OAuth providers, so sign in with X, require definitive real estate on your website because you don't know whether somebody has Google or Facebook or NetSuite if you want to go as crazy as an OAuth option like that until somebody clicks the button and you can start the verification process. One of the really interesting things about the way that Web3 wallets started to gain popularity as Chrome extensions is that they can actually talk with the web page, have that handshake when they land on a website, and you can decide to only offer the login with MetaMask or login phantom option if it's a user that's recognized to have installed that. I actually think that's one of the more underrated things about Web3 authentication adoption and Web2 is that you don't need to sacrifice current Web2 users that don't know what this is, or you don't need to confuse them and muddle the UX, you can actually give the users that already know what it is this advantage, potentially increase your conversion with them, your support from them, but you don't have to sacrifice the Web 2.0 off experience. Related to that is that we actually see on the Web 2.0 side what's been even stronger demand than putting that when I see somebody has a MetaMask, that next to log with Google. What's even been stronger demand is how do I enrich an existing user object in my data model? I have this user that has read at gmail.com. He has this other information on him. Could I actually allow him to append a verified Web3 wallet like his MetaMask or his Phantom once he's in the application in order to get some special incentive or gated experience? And that's actually where we've seen more Web2 companies working with us have started. I'm in a logged in state from the Web2 world. Now I want to verify I own this Ethereum address or the Solana address because they want to look at the tokens to gate some experience, Or, for example, there's a number of banks that are looking at how could I accept stable coins. And if you wanted to accept stable coins, you do need to verify that the USDC received came from this person that owns this Ethereum wallet, if you want to credit it to them in just USD in their account. And so that's often what we're seeing more immediate demand for, because I think it feels easier for a lot of Web2 companies of how can I enrich a user object and give this differentiated experience rather than putting it on the front door. But I would say the front door, the reason I think it's resonated for those that have gone down that path is that they don't have to model the UX, but they can offer the option.
1: It's super interesting to think about how we could use those wallets. I feel like there's a bit of a common theme of when people want to use Web3 wallets, sometimes we revert back to Web2 tendencies. Like the example I gave someone was for Board Ape Festival, we had to go to a website, we had to generate a user password, then we had to wait in line for three and a half hours, hand it to a person who gave us a bracelet. There just has to be a much better way of authenticating that I own this thing to show up. So I can imagine with the magic that Stitch does. How is Stitch going to make it easier for me in 23 or 24 to attend
2: something based on token-gated access? The first two products that we've launched in this Web3 authentication arena is Login with Solana and Login with Ethereum. What that supports is any Ethereum-based or Solana-based wallet can now be used either as a primary authentication option for a user or, as I was talking about earlier, to enrich an existing authentication user object. You could, if you wanted to, allow someone to log with MetaMask, Coinbase Wallet to your application, or log with Phantom or Glow Wallet. But you could also allow them to just add that verified metadata onto your user construct. What's valuable about that, to your point, is that for the festival, if they wanted to gate this experience, they could have just had you verify that you owned the Ethereum wallet in question. They could have used a QR code for you to scan it, do the authentication process with Stitch, would start a session, and it would show the attestation that you'd actually done that. So that's one thing that you can do. The other thing that was important to us in building support for LogMove Ethereum and LogMove Solana is that you need a lot of developer ergonomics around it. So like, how do I actually manage a user session when they sign up or log in? Often the way that you do this today in Web2 is with session tokens or JSON web tokens, JWTs, in order to make sure a user is still logged in and that you can verify that as they navigate the site. There's not a Web3 native concept of session management, because a lot of the ways our interfaces are interacting with Web3 is actually through a Web2 interface. There are Web2 authentication elements that are not going to change in the Web3 world, such as things like session management. There's going to be some innovation on it, but there's a lot of the same foundational truths to how you manage users. The other thing that's interesting is we've seen some demand for companies that want to use this ability to authenticate an Ethereum or Solana address to actually build 2FA on top of experiences with our Web2 products. So that you could log in with MetaMask, but you also have to do a biometric in order to take some action in their app or do an SMS 2FA if you want to do something like that. What I think is interesting is both obviously the ability for you to authenticate any Ethereum or Solana wallet, but then also all the ergonomics that you can get through the other parts of the Stitch product suite once you've done that.
1: From listening to you, it seems like you're going in the direction of building all the pieces that you might want for a wallet, or you have a lot of opinions on how Web3 wallets could work. I've heard about Passport of the internet. What does that mean? And what is it doing there?
2: We've actually built a new brand that's dedicated towards this opportunity of what would a first party account or Passport for the internet look like in an ideal world where it can blend the best features of Web2 with Web3's new innovations. The name of that brand is Vessel. So how can you carry this vessel around that has your financial identity, but also things like your personal identity. Sometimes it has attestations where you don't actually want to share private information. Vessel, we've been calling it a passport that can bridge web two and web three. And the reason we call it a passport rather than a wallet is as I mentioned, it's not just the financial components that we find interesting. It's a lot of the other things that you can do as you hop from one site to another onboarding without creating passwords. Then also you can be stepped up to authenticating this Ethereum address and making the transaction if you want to later. Vessel has a core set of product features, which are to us what maybe an ideal Web3 wallet experience or architecture could look like. The first thing that I'll call out is that it is built for both Web3 and Web2. What I mean by that is the Web3 pieces that we've become accustomed to, which is I have my Ethereum address in my MetaMask wallet or my Solana address in my Phantom wallet. All of those features that you'd expect are still there from a receive, send, swap, cryptocurrency type of experience, as well as sharing or connecting that wallet with a Web3 application when you want to share that information. The bigger changes that we've made are that that is one tab of the wallet that you can dive into the crypto world and the Web3 world. The other tab that is core to the sense of how Vessel works is what we call your credentials tab or your identity tab. And this is where you can accumulate and verify other pieces of information about yourself, that you can choose whether or not to share that with sites in the future if you trust them. So you can do things like verify your email address, verify your phone number, and then remove the need for yourself when you land on a site that recognizes Vessel for you to ever go through another email verification or phone verification process in the future because you can just decide to share those attributes with them. These 2 different worlds that we're trying to bridge, which is, how can I take the fact that I can land on a site It can instantly recognize me and either make my Web2 account process far easier if it's using some of those attributes and needs those attributes for how the application operates. A lot of applications still require email address. So how can you meet them where they are? And you can also get those Web3 features, which are, I can connect my Ethereum or my Solana address if I want to. I think some of the other core differentiators, though, to what we've seen in the market is that on the Web3 side, this is multi-chain by default. So we start with Ethereum and Solana support, but we've created the product so that it is very simple or extensible for us to add to other chains that become popular in the future that end users would want. The second thing is that one of the problems that we have with the future of a world where a user is sharing their Web3 wallet in order to connect to non-financial DeFi or NFT use cases is that we imagine that a lot of users are not going to want to shed their entire financial transaction history and provide that to every e-commerce site or SaaS site or gaming site that wants them to connect their MetaMask or their phantom. Instead, we think a lot of users will value having an obfuscation layer where they can identify their Web3 identity, but they don't need to actually share the public key on their Ethereum or Solana address so that they can allow that privacy-preserving layer. And so one of the things that we built into the architecture of this is you actually start with an obfuscation layer on top, and you can decide when it's a site that actually should be granted access to the underlying public key so that they can see the transaction history. But that by default is not going to be something that you have to give up if you want to get the Web2 or Web3 authentication features. That's something we're really excited about. The other thing that I'll note that we're particularly excited about is making it so the actual onboarding experience is very similar to what you might go through in a Web2 experience so that we're not. Losing all these users that get to an onboarding experience have to go through those anxiety-inducing seed phrase, local-only password issues that we were talking about earlier. And instead, they actually are able to go through something that feels familiar, feels like it will have value in both the Web2 and Web3 world, and then therefore makes them more likely to stick with this product and continue down the onboarding flow.
1: It sounds great Has features we haven't even seen before. Cross-train is huge because that's a pain to have wallets on every chain. You're able to obfuscate layers of information so I can share what I want about myself. But one of the benefits of these seed phrases and this death warning message of if you lose this, you lose everything. And if you ever give your seed phrase away, people lose tremendous amounts of wealth is it instills a lot of responsibility. How are you not training people to go back to the web too of bad passwords, all the things we talked about earlier that we don't want the user doing? I understand we have this trade-off of good UX, we want to onboard them, but we also don't want them to come up with lazy
2: passwords. It's a great question and definitely a balance that we tried to strike in the creation of Vessel. And so I'll go into a little bit more detail on how Vessel works from a user onboarding perspective and how we actually derive the private keys for this non-custodial passport slash these wallets that the user is carrying around with them. That will answer your questions specifically both about the responsibility that a user still has in this world, but how we make it accessible to them and we protect them from, as we were talking about, foot guns. Since we always want to make it easy for the user, but also you don't want to hide so much of the magic under the hood that the user doesn't understand what they're signing up for. When you go through the onboarding process to download the Chrome extension for Vessel and you're onboarding to it, we do still have to give you warnings, right? This is a non-custodial account where we can never reconstitute it for you. We've made it much easier for you to manage this vessel passport, but we do not have a password reset or account reset process that we can go recover it for you because that's really important to the actual Web3 ethos, but also to a lot of interesting things you can do in Web3 to be that non-custodial vessel for the user. What we do in terms of how the user creates the account Rather than giving them a seed phrase and telling them that's the thing that they have to learn how to put it in a security deposit box, they have to do the two-minute quiz on if they correctly stored it, what was word 3, 9, 21. Instead, what we do is we give them three very simple inputs that are the actual basis of the private key derivation. And it's effectively a seed phrase that we are abstracting away the complexity that this is a seed phrase from the end user. And we do two things. We explain to them what's happening, but then also we protect a lot of what they could do that would lead them astray so that they don't run into trouble. What we explained to them is there are three inputs here that are going to derive your non-custodial passport. And it looks pretty similar to a Web2 interface. You're going to enter your email address, you're going to enter a strong secure password, and we'll have requirements on numbers, letters, special characters, capitalization, and then you're going to enter a PIN. So maybe not too dissimilar from how you manage your bank account or maybe how you manage your Apple devices, where I have my password for my MacBook, but I have my PIN for my mobile phone. But what we have to do there in order to make sure that the user doesn't have too much control and can lead themselves astray is that big problem that we talked about in Web2, where passwords are reused across different accounts that creates a large attack vector. The first thing that we do is when you actually go through the password creation phase, or whenever you come back to log in, we are hashing that and doing a check against the entire publicly exposed data breach data that is available online around any password that has been involved in a breach prior, so that we can make sure that you cannot actually create an account with a weak password in that sense. Because it may even be strong from a definitional sense of the characters, numbers, etc. in it. But it's not safe if it's been involved in a target breach or a LinkedIn breach. So that's one of the first checks that we do. At the PIN stage where they create a PIN, we give them similar instructions, not to use birth dates and things like that. But I think the other thing that we do is something that we do under the hood for them. And we explain to them what's happening from a security standpoint computationally, but we don't make them think about how to protect themselves from this. If you think about the 1Password model for how do I have this secure account that has this master password and hold all of my other passwords, 1Password had to innovate on a lot of the account security when it came to making it computationally difficult for somebody to try to hack a 1Password account. So one of the things that they actually do with your master password is they put your master password through a hashing algorithm called PBKDF2 100,000 times to get your actual derived encrypted key. What that does is it makes it extremely computationally expensive for somebody to try to stuff credentials or steal or derive what your account was. I think the academic research on it that 1Password is published is you'd have to have almost a billion dollars in a 1Password account for it to be game theoretically reasonable for somebody to try to hack it. One of the things that we do on that password check, even after we've checked all of the public data breaches, is that we actually run it through 30x more rounds of PDK DF2 encryption than 1Password does. So 3 million rounds versus 100,000, massively increasing the computational difficulty of trying to even validate credentials or try to steal an account. A user would have to have billions of dollars worth there in order for it to make any logical sense. And at that point, we'd hope that you're using something like an anchorage or a fire block in order to custody those funds, or that you've figured out some other cold storage method. There, we also have two extra entropy inputs: the email address and the PIN that add as additional layers. So even beyond the academic research of the computational difficulty of trying to crack that strong unique password, there's a lot that we're able to do with the fact that this is three inputs versus one from a security standpoint. In many ways, this will look like a familiar Web2 experience. We do communicate some of the things we're stopping you from doing to yourself. And then we do some things underneath the hood from an encryption perspective to make it computationally secure.
1: It's interesting to think about a world where if this takes off back to the original business where you started working with a lot of these companies, I could imagine the wallet now becomes truly your passport around the internet. One of the things you talked about that I like is when I go to get my haircut and I log on, they don't need to know my... NFT net worth and that decision of how to price me or something. Not that they would, but I just don't want to share that. And so if you're like, okay, you can know my name and how often I come, knock yourselves out. But the rest of the information I want to keep from you.
2: It's also what I think a lot of users need as a reassurance to start using these wallets or passports on non-DEX products, non-financial heavy products, because why would I ever want to let my hairdresser know how much I have in my Ethereum address or my Solana address? and the fact that I just bought this alien NFT a week ago. Those are a lot of things where I shouldn't have to share that if I want to get the value prop of the other parts of these Web3 authentication architectures. I'm really excited
1: to play with it and test it out. And I also love the multi-chain part because keeping multiple wallets is very difficult for someone who uses them, even all the time. Definitely. Reed. we'd like to end the podcast with the same question to everyone. What are you most excited to build over the next six months, which I think we might've just heard of, and what are you most excited to build over the next six years?
2: Over the next six months, Vessel is our first active approach to building a passport for the internet. When we started the company a couple years ago, that was actually in our first seed deck where the vision for what this becomes is not only do we want to build developer tools, make it easy to adopt low friction authentication... We also really want to build this concept of how can I bring my identity and information with me from a secure one-click experience, whether that's space ID, and then I share that information across sites and can revision what makes sense. So we've always been interested in that. What I'm very excited about in these next six months is Vessel is that first visible way people see what we've been doing. We've done a lot of stuff on our network under the hood and how we've architected it for being able to support something like that through a more passive network approach. This is the first time we've actively put a first-party account in front of end users with something like Vessel. So that's definitely something I'm excited about because I think it allows us to move much closer to that ultimate 5-10-year to vision of creating a passport for the internet. That's honestly where the 6-year vision comes in. In order to support a passport for the internet, you want to make it so that every site has the ability to detect when a user with one of these conceptually innovative passports or Web3 wallets lands on their site, you want to make it easy, like how do we get Macy's.com to add the little snippet of code so that they can support actually recognizing a Vessel wallet or a MetaMask wallet or a Phantom wallet. Vessel doesn't need to replace those things. We just think it's a different approach in terms of how Web3 wallets and passports could work. So how do we get to that adoption curve where not only can an end user have this passport for the internet, but it's recognized everywhere that they go because those sites have integrated the snippets of code that would allow them to easily recognize and onboard or log in that user. And that's where we do see the two-pronged approach of Stitch as being a developer-focused company that also is putting out this passport for the internet as a very valuable future flywheel where our SDKs make it really easy for you to embed crypto wallet authentication and a normal Web2 passwordless authentication into your apps. You're using us for logging with Google, Apple email magic links today. With a click of a button, you could also start accepting these Web3 wallets that land on your website that have verified email addresses. What I get really excited about next six months is different than six years because six months, it's about putting this first party experience in front of people so that they can see what Web3 authentication can turn into in both a Web2 and Web3 compatible world. Six years from now, what I'm very excited about is that we have proliferated the core developer product suites. With APIs and SDKs across the internet so that that first-party experience is acceptable everywhere for any user that wants that. That's one of the things we think about is not just building that first-party account, but how do you make it really easy for developers to integrate? And obviously, that's a lot of the core of what we've built historically, but we'll continue to build.
1: Awesome. Reid, I've learned so much from you about authentication, how passwords work, two-factor, all this type of cool stuff it's only going to become more important as people take on more responsibility and try to move across the internet in different ways. And so I think the waste is, is its is really in the sweet spot of that. Thank you so much for your time, and I'm looking forward to talking to you soon.
2: Thank you for having me on. I appreciate the time as well.
0: To find more episodes of Breakdowns or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out JoinColossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S.com.